Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter, When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, what do you call a tropical island in the dead of winter? Bermuda. Where do zombies like to go sailing? The Dead Sea. Today's guest is Brandon Doheny. He is a marine scientist, diver, and sailor. We have such a fun conversation today, ranging from crazy 200 plus foot dives to eDNA sampling to teaching technology how to identify sea creatures. Currently, Brandon is on an extended sailing trip with his family, sailing from California in the US to New Zealand. So of course we chat about this adventure. Brandon has some great insights into what it takes to create your own path in life, and I am thrilled to share this conversation with you. Please enjoy. Brandon, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. So you are off on a grand sailing adventure right now. You are, you're sailing. You live on a sailboat. How did you get into this? What inspired this trip? What inspired sailing? Oh, yeah. So, well, sailing's been in my blood for a long time. Um, I grew up sailing, racing small sailboats. And yeah, I've worked on boats for a long time. And, and so the sailing thing, it was actually born one afternoon. I was out with a friend and just had this sort of wild idea, like, what if we just kept going? From there, I kind of just went home and I was pretty young and told my parents, like, hey, I want to do this. And they said, well, you definitely cannot do it on our boat. <laughs> it's way too small. But if you wanted to do it, this is how you would do it. So anyway, that's kind of how the bug got started in my head. And then, um, yeah, I've sailed across the Pacific three times now, once with people I didn't know, once with just my wife before we were married. And now we've just finished with our two children. It's been a great ride. But yeah, we love sailing. I'm not much of a racer, but I do love the adventure part of it and the travel component to it. And it's a great way to just be as close to the ocean as you possibly can. Absolutely. That's one way to test your relationship. Hey, let's go on a sailing adventure across the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You learn a lot about people at sea, that's for sure. Yeah, I always say, you know, if you if you're with somebody, travel with them. If you travel well together, that, you know, it's a good indicator. But the sailing trip across the ocean's a whole nother level. Yeah, I've I've had trips that were with people that were not so like minded and yeah, it's it's not fun doing that. My wife and I, we compliment each other so well on the boat that it's a blessing to meet her and to be able to do what we've done. So I feel pretty grateful about that, that's for sure. Awesome. So sailing and being close to the ocean. 
Is that what inspired you to kind of get into marine science? Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up by the ocean. Um, I grew up in Santa Barbara, California. So we're right by the coast. And my parents, they loved going to the beach and we loved camping. We had a Vita van that I basically spent half my childhood in. So yeah, I was always in and around the water. My dad was a big surfer. And so I ended up getting into surfing at a very young age. And yeah, that really took hold of my life. So yeah, basically I just spent a ton of time in and around the ocean as a kid. And that sort of just sparked the enthusiasm for the ocean, I guess you could say. Yeah, for marine science, it came a bit later. You know, when I was young, I was just infatuated with the ocean and being around it, everything about it. I started free diving and spearfishing when I was pretty young, like 14. That really, actually, if I think back about it, was such a critical day in my life, that first day where I really put my head underwater with a purpose. For me, it was this moment where I started looking around a lot more carefully and observing what was going on and thinking about where I was in the water and what I was doing a lot more. It became this game of really identifying species, understanding where they are, how they behave. And that sort of set me off on the underwater path. From there, really, I just kind of kept progressing. I started working on dive boats and doing internships and things like that, kind of just keeping going with what I was enjoying, which was the ocean. Yeah, ultimately that ended up in me continuing on that pathway through college and things like that. So, Yeah. So going into university, you knew you wanted to study ocean science or was it something you were like, I'm kind of interested, but was there something else that kind of captivated your interest? Yeah. You know, I think I was like most kids, you sort of come out of high school or your, your younger learning years and you go into college not knowing exactly what you want to do. I really at the time wanted to be out traveling and adventuring. And so being put into those initial classes in your undergrad is really tough. And you do have to try to find your way through it sometimes. I ended up in my undergraduate degree with a degree in geography, but I got to that point mainly because they didn't have at the time an oceanography degree for me at the University of California that I was at. I ended up taking mostly macro scale earth systems classes. So things like oceanography, meteorology, geology. I just really wanted to understand how all those things interact. And then doing that, you learn a lot about geographic information systems, GIS, remote sensing, so satellite data, and obviously biology and what's going on in those broader systems. So I think my undergraduate was focused, but not necessarily. I didn't have in mind that I wanted to be a marine scientist at that point. I just knew that I was trying to follow down the path that you know I enjoyed doing and was really interested in. You know, if you're enjoying what you're doing, I think that's a pretty good indicator of you're on the right path, right? If you're miserable, you got to switch it up. I hope so. Yeah, that's that was that was my thinking at least. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so when did the official like switch into ocean science happen? Yeah, so that that was a bit of a journey as well. I've been thinking about it, and, and I think that there was another major turning point in my life. So midway through my undergrad, I was doing what most young college people do. I was working at a restaurant. I ended up breaking my arm, and then when my arm was healed up and I could go back to work, they basically said I didn't have a job because it had already been filled. So that was really my aha moment of, hey, I want to go get a job that I also enjoy. So I went down to the harbor, and I actually asked a commercial dive boat, they take scuba divers out to the Channel Islands, do you have any work? And so they said, no, you need to be scuba certified. And so I literally walked down the street, signed up for a scuba course. Four days later, had my scuba cert in hand, went back to the boat, told them I got my scuba cert, got hired the next day and was out on that boat working. 
Yeah, that whole experience was life-changing, really, because they saw that I was interested and dedicated. They started to teach me everything about boats and diving and safety and research and basically put me under the water for the first time. So in doing that, I really launched my sort of underwater life. From then I was hooked. I've got almost 2000 dives under my belt now. So that was really, that was really what gave me my push into that world. Um, and I worked on those boats for a number of years and yeah, it was, it was extremely important for my growing up in that area. So 2000 dives, that's an insane amount of dives. Um, that's amazing. Where were most of them in the Channel Islands or kind of just all over? Yeah. So those, that operation had, the boat was the vision and they operated out of all the Channel Islands, but they would do basically the whole Southern California bite. So all the way out to Cortez Banks, which is a hundred miles offshore. There's a dozen islands out there. So I got to dive around almost all of them. Got to see a lot of places that nobody would normally take you that were remote and difficult to get to, but those were definitely the boats to do it on. So I had people that mentored me on those boats and really got me up to speed with everything. That was amazing. That is amazing. I saw that you dove to 230 feet. Was that for work or for like, let me see if I can do this? Yeah, that was, um, so that was on the, the Truth Aquatics boats. I had been diving with a dive master for multiple days and we were given permission to dive on one of the oil platforms that are sort of mid channel. So it was a straight up, straight down dive. And yeah, our, our goal was to max out at depth. We had gone down to the pilings and basically it was just a complete bounce dive. So we went down real slow and then we came up extremely, extremely slow. But yeah, that was, um, that was a really amazing experience to go down to that depth. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I would do that again now, but, um, <laughs> when I was 20, I was, I was a little bit more, uh, wild, I guess than, than I am now. So I know a lot more now. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, though. It's a cool experience. It was beautiful. All black, completely um, narked out of my mind. It was it was amazing. Now, did you have lights and stuff or were you just kind of like watching your gear and that was it? That was an amazing dive. Once you get past 180 feet, nitrogen narcosis really sets in and you have a hard time feeling your own body. So you're conscious of your sight and your sound and you're still breathing. But past that, you really actually start to lose the feeling of breathing. So you can hear the bubbles coming in and out. It's really, you know, you just go into astronaut mode at that stage. Yeah, you, you have this very interesting feeling of basically being completely numb. Down at that depth, there's very little light. You have these huge anemones sticking off the, the rig. Yeah, you basically just use the pilings and you know that keeps you oriented. But there, there's a lot of danger associated with that kind of diving. So you need to be very careful when you're doing stuff like that. Definitely having a good partner was key. Yeah, like I said, it, had I known what was going on that I know now, I would have been much more careful when I was young. But you made it through and it makes a great story. That's it, exactly. <laughs> So what brought you back into the world of academia? It sounds like you were having so much fun on the dive charter. Yeah, the dive charter was fun. It was almost too much fun. So I knew that that was going to sort of end at some point. What happened was I got out of my undergrad. I was working on the dive boats. I had a girlfriend. This dream of sailing around the world was still etched in my mind, although I didn't really know how or when it was going to come together. But yeah, we ended up coming up with this plan to buy a derelict old sailboat in the Santa Barbara Harbor there. And instead of paying, you know, $2,000 a month for rent, like it is in Santa Barbara, we lived on this boat together. We were both working full time and saved up money and basically 
completely redid the sailboat. Three years later, we sailed out of Santa Barbara Harbor. And two years later, we ended up in New Zealand. So that trip took us through the South Pacific and through Central America. Really, that trip was what set me off on my path towards where I'm at now. I was able to see the ocean in a much different way and a much at a much broader scale, you know, get to dive reefs that were pristine and then dive reefs that definitely impacted heavily. That really, when I got back from that trip was a moment for me where I need to step in. I need to do something. I need to be involved. I need to understand these systems a lot more thoroughly. Yeah, really just try to dedicate the rest of my life to doing whatever I can in that field. So yeah, we got home from that trip and I immediately applied to the Bren School of Environmental Science, which is at UCSB. Yeah, that school's amazing. They have such a great motto and what they're doing is so important for getting work done, actually. I feel like they prepare people for jobs and they really get people up to speed to go out into the field and make change. And so their support, guidance and all that was critical for me. What was some of the things that were part of your curriculum that made you feel like so ready for the job world? Well, the difference between Bren and a normal master's program was they they really fill in all those gaps. So in a normal master's program, you can definitely find yourself going deep into a specific area of study, whatever that may be in the marine world or at any master's program. What Bren does is it really also helps you make sure that your resume is good. They make sure that you can interview well. They make sure that your email is professional. They make they fill in all these little things that you might not necessarily have. And on top of that, they get you connected with employers. They get you thinking about what area of the world you want to go into. Do you want to be working for an NGO or do you want to work for a university or do you want to start your own company? And so there's all these different avenues you can take at Bren, but they definitely tailor it to when you get out of Bren with a master's, you have a path forward. They make sure of that. And so that was great for me because the marine science world can be confusing. The job world is very confusing, especially now for people to find their ways. It's hard. So yes, yeah, it's, it's super important. When I did graduate from Bren, I was able to get a job straight away. So that was great. Amazing. And what was your first job? So yeah, I did my master's at Bren and finished that. While I was at Bren, we were also going around and meeting different people that we were sort of interested to talk with about what their job openings were, what their ideas were for potential pathways for, for me in particular. And so, yeah, I went in and had a conversation with Dr. Bob Miller, who works at the Marine Science Institute at University of California. Just had a chat with him about what he was doing, as I did with other people as well. So yeah, after I graduated, he actually got in touch with me and said, hey, are you interested in this position that we have? coming up. We have a grant to do some subtitle research in the Santa Barbara channel. And so I went in and yeah, the job was great. It fit me perfectly. So Bob Miller and Dr. Mark Page were the PIs that basically hired me and I have been working with them ever since and they're great friends of mine. So that was an amazing turning point in my life. So what was some of the research that you were doing then in the Santa Barbara channel? Is this, start, is this like the start of your eDNA journey? Yeah, so a lot of the work that I've been doing there is similar, but it's morphed over the years. We're all grant funded, so it's project-based work. And usually we have two, three, four, five, six different projects going on at once that all vary in size. But yeah, essentially what we were doing is benthic marine ecology. So we were studying what grows on the reefs 
the initial project that I was hired on for was to be out doing photography on reefs and oil platforms. So we were trying to study some of the effects of artificial platforms and how they would interact with local reefs. The project was going out, taking photographs of the reefs and going out and taking photographs of what's growing on oil platforms and coming back and analyzing those images. Hmm. Yeah, that project was was amazing because I got straight into the field with complex equipment, a dive team, and started running boats doing underwater photography. So that was that was how it all started. Yeah, that's kind of like file that under like classic ideal marine biology jobs. <laughs> it, it was. It was. It was the perfect job. A great crew of people doing something really interesting in my backyard. Yeah. So I felt extremely lucky to have found that position. Yeah. So I'm curious, your photography is amazing. Did you, were you doing photography before this position or was this kind of like your introductory and like you've just kind of grown since? No, I am. I have no artistic skill basically. So (laughs) (laughs) I I think in straight lines usually. So the photography thing is actually relatively new. I would never have dreamt of getting an underwater camera. You know, they're just, it's expensive equipment and it's a unique sort of niche thing. But yeah, so this project, we started out with a Nikonos, which is a film camera underwater. We ultimately realized how difficult it was to use film. And just like every other photographer in the world, we transitioned to digital because it's just so much better and easier. Nothing against film. I love film, but underwater in, in the research field when you're working, it's not time to get um, to get fancy in that way. So we quickly switched over to like a, a great high resolution Canon underwater camera setup. And so, yeah, I basically had seven years of free experience using these cameras of a bunch of different types of them. And that really sort of gave me the confidence to do underwater photography on my own in my free time. But that being said, even when we were when I was at work doing photography underwater, this is not, it's not what you would think of as <laughs> beautiful underwater photography. We were taking pictures of the rocks up close. So I didn't have time when I was out in the field working to take these beautiful kept four shots and, and things that I did on my free time. But it definitely gave me the confidence to start doing it on my own. And it's been fun. It's super fun. Yeah. So I'm curious, what were some of the similarities or differences that you were seeing in these rock formations or reef structures out in the reef versus on these oil rigs? Well, they vary extremely over where you are. It can vary from even the top of a ridge line of a rock to the bottom of that rock. So what we would do is we'd dive down, we would run a transect tape out, so like a long tape measure underwater, and we would take photographs at intervals along those transects. We would mark with floats exactly where the start and end of these transects were, and we would take GPS points for them. At the end, we got to know these reefs that we were photographing so well that we knew exactly where we had taken photos before. Over time, we got to see these reefs change, especially in a kelp forest, rocky reef system. You can have these massive changes in what's going on on the reef through the year, all times through the year, whether a storm has come through and wiped kelp out. So it was so interesting to watch how dynamic these ecosystems are. Usually when you dive, you just go down there for one dive or one trip and you see it at that one moment. And so you don't see how much is going on throughout the year. But, you know, at places like Naples Reef, I dove that reef almost every month for years and years on end. And so to see it go through all of its phases was really cool. 
Yeah. So were you noticing like kind of just each season of the year, it kind of shifted and changed and you could watch it kind of go through that cycle every year? What were you kind of noticing? Yeah, it wasn't necessarily seasons like we have, you know, on land. It depended on a bunch of factors in the ocean, you know, water temperature, storms coming through, you know, fishing has a big part too, but we were watching these communities change over time. One thing we got into at the end of our work was time-lapse cameras to look at species over, you know, how they move around within days to weeks sort of thing. One of the major components of the photography that we were doing was working with the data analysis side of that imagery. And so we were working really closely with some extremely smart people in the machine learning world. And there was a program that we were using called BISC. It's now morphed into an online site called Viki, V-I-Q-I. You can look it up online. That software was amazing for us. Basically, it was a software program. So we were uploading our images to this program. And then we were scoring the images by overlaying sort of, you could think about it as a, a mat of dots. So we'd have a hundred dots that we'd put on an image and within each image, we'd identify each species that was in each dot. And so we would have this quantitative number of percent cover or how many species were in each image. We would do that with every single image we shot on each transect. And so over time, we were able to see how those percent covers changed for each species. We were also able to see how many species were in a certain area and we were able to dive into all kinds of complex sort of analyses on what was going on on these reefs year after year, month after month. I'm assuming you were taking kind of water quality measurements as well while you were diving. Were you seeing any correlations between the measurements that you were taking and the photographs that you were taking? We were doing some of that. Um, that wasn't our primary focus for these projects. We were taking samples, sort of environmental samples as we call them as well. But yeah, for us really, the holy grail has been to try to push this relationship between artificial intelligence, machine learning, and the imagery and trying to link up computer identification with what we're seeing in the images. And so that's where ultimately my job really started heading was trying to work with the, the guys that were working at BISC and Vicky and trying to help them as much as possible understand what we needed. And then they were helping us to do all the heavy lifting with the machine learning side of things. That's awesome. Yeah, because I can imagine, you know, you mentioned you had 100 points in one of these photos and you took at least a couple of photos, right? I'm sure there's more than that. It would take a lot of time, painstaking time to like one person analyze that. So yeah, the machine learning would be vital in that situation. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It came to the point where we had an entire lab full of computer monitors and we had interns and undergraduates and graduate students, everyone that we could find helping to score some of these photos. And so that was a great experience to get to work with a bunch of different people on that whole project. But yeah, it was such a group effort to analyze the images. You know, we'd go out and just, just on one dive day, we would collect hundreds and hundreds of images all of which had 100 points on them, all of which had difficult species to identify. Yeah, it was it was a massive undertaking. And we've scored, oh man, I think now they're probably up to well over 200,000 species in, in these images. Yeah, each time we're identifying these species through the software program. So you click on an image and identify that dot as a certain species. Well, now the computer's learning more about what that species looks like. So it's taking all the pixel qualities that you just identified and attributing those to that species. So it's teaching the computer how to identify species. So you can't do that with all species. There are certain ones that are very cryptic or hard to identify, you know, via their 
pixel qualities. If we could even do the top 10, that would be a huge step forward. And we are now getting to that point where we can do that very effectively. Very cool. So you did this research, you said, for seven years? I worked for the university for just about seven years and then decided to take a sailing trip with our two children. It's always been something that we had dreamed of doing. And so, yeah, while on that trip, I've sort of stayed in close contact with people over there and have continued doing some research on our latest boat trip, which has been really fun to do as well. Yeah. So I really want to get into that. I mean, you say you collect eDNA data, which is the environmental data, which I've just learned about. I mean, I say recently within the last year, I like the whole concept of you can take a water sample and then tell who's been there lately just boggles my mind. It's amazing. So I want to kind of dive a little bit into that. What are you seeing? At this point, mainly what I've been doing is collection of water. So what we do on the boat is basically getting a bag of water that's, you know, our equipment has all been sterilized, but we're collecting a bag of water and we're running it through these really fine filters. What you get on these filters is basically a film. It's like marine dust. And so, yeah, like you're saying, you can take that into a lab and you can extract out of it DNA. What eDNA shows us, it gives us a sort of relative idea of what species are in the area. And also you can sort of gain some inferences on their abundance in that area. What's the proportion of DNA from this particular species in this area versus another place? So yeah, it's a, it's a really exciting area of work that, to be honest, myself as well, I've just been learning about you know, through this program. So it's been really fun to, to take the samples and they're being analyzed now. So yeah, hopefully we'll have some results on that really soon. Yeah, I'd be curious what the results are, like kind of what you've been uncovering along your way. Yeah. I mean, so much of marine science now is really focusing on these less expensive and passive ways that we can collect information. And so the technology is really ramping up on that side of things. You know, we need to be able to collect as much information as we can over broad scales and frequencies as cheaply as possible. The ocean's a really difficult place to work in and it's costly. Things like eDNA and imagery in the future, what we what we hope is that we'll have AUVs and automated things going around and taking images of the ocean floor and, and computers analyzing it. That way we can get a heap of data coming in at us and we don't have to necessarily put divers out in the water at risk and we can access places that we might not be able to go to all the time. Yeah, it's all super exciting work. Yeah, that's awesome. And I saw on your website for wilderness that you are also recording information for animals and like tagging animals. Are like, have you tagged any animals on this trip? No, no, we haven't actually done any of that. We moved on to the boat that we're on, the boat name's Wilderness, and we moved on three days before COVID took over the entire world. So we had grand plans of, you know, graduate researchers coming down and doing work in throughout the Pacific. And we had all these plans that basically just completely disintegrated when COVID happened. And so, yeah, it's been a sort of side goal of mine to build this relationship between sailors and the research world. Yeah, I just see all these boats out in the ocean sailing around that are very willing and capable of collecting information. And it would be great to see that turn into a relationship that's more formal. I've been talking with people about that, but yeah, we're just kind of in this holding pattern of being able to do much right now because shipping is such a difficult thing to do and it's really hard to just move people around the world right now. 
I think there's big space there for technology and, and sampling to sort of meet that requirement. Yeah, there, there's a ton that you can do, and there's so much to be done from small sailboats that big ships can't do. So, for sure, yeah. I mean, you made some really great points of that on your website, like low cost compared to like these giant research vessels. Like just to turn them on and get out the harbor costs an arm and a leg in gas, right? So like you don't have gas and like zero emissions. There's definitely some perks and just more maneuverability with a smaller boat. Yeah, definitely. And and the sampling sort of could happen continuously because you're always having sailboats in these places. If you imagine every single year you have a flotilla of boats that's traversing its way through the Pacific Ocean or any ocean for that matter, and, and plenty of them are interested in volunteering to do scientific data collection, there's definitely space for a program where we can facilitate those boats and get citizen science up and running and in that sort of realm. I'd love to work more on that at some point. Yeah, I love that idea. So on the sailing side, I mean, this is, you said your third trip, the second one that you've kind of led the charge on. What are some tips that you have for somebody that wants to go out and get on a boat and sail across the ocean? Yeah, so sailing is really not that difficult. The, the, The difficult side of it is getting your life organized to where you could take time to go do that. And then also learning about boats. Boats are just complicated beasts. They're they're basically low-tech space shuttles. When you are out in the middle of the ocean, you feel like you're in outer space. You need to be mentally prepared to take care of yourself, for one, be alone, and fix anything that goes wrong on the boat. Aside from that, really, it's, you know, your fundamentals in weather, your fundamentals in sailing. I mean, we've met so many people out sailing the world that know essentially nothing about sailing. (laughs) But they were brave enough and had the ability to jump off and do it. So yeah, I would say anyone interested in in sailing the world in that way, yeah, just get some experience on boats and sailing, obviously. Get some experience with fixing things and using tools and then learn your boat and go give it a shot, you know? (laughs) Tell someone where you're going, but go give it a shot. (laughs) That's good advice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Very cool. So what were some of the things that you did to get ready for this? Or were you just like walking into your PI's office one day and then like, all right, so we've been working on this idea for a while. We're leaving in two weeks to go sail around the world. I'll see you later. Yeah. Well, everyone that works with me knows that I have these crazy ideas from time to time. But (laughs) yeah, no, we had always sort of said that when we had kids at this particular age, this sort of moldable age where they still enjoy hanging out with us and things like that, that we would go do some adventure like this with them. So Yeah, um, it was a really hard decision to make, to be honest. I loved my job and I loved who I worked with. I had a really good thing going. But when you have kids, it's a very unique moment in time. And we just felt like you get one shot at this. And we wanted to raise our kids with a really deep understanding of the ocean and of sustainability and of them being able to tackle these fears that everyone has. So when we did our first sailing trip, we sailed really closely with a family and got to watch that whole process unfold. And so we knew that we wanted to make this work and it was difficult. You know, we had to break everything down that we had built and leave so and leave our friends and family. And that was definitely by far the hardest part of it. The sailing part was great, but anytime you do one thing, you're giving up something else. So that was definitely the case for us. Right. So you're in New Zealand now, what's next? Yeah, we so we arrived in New Zealand. We sort of decided to take a pause on the world travel. We love New Zealand. Yeah, I just 
actually yesterday got our work visas for a job down here. I'm now working for E3 Scientific, which is a consulting company on the South Island of New Zealand. At the start here, I'm going to be doing freshwater ecology of all things. Yeah, doing consulting work, basically preparing reports and preparing information for people that want to do anything around any freshwater bodies. Studying the ecology and studying the impacts of what those proposed projects are. So, um, yeah, doing that in the freshwater space. And then there is hopefully in the future some marine work as well. Yeah, really excited about being here. And, and this, I think this job's going to be amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. That was one of my questions. You Did you have to save up for a while? I mean, you and your wife had this idea in your head and like your last trip took two years. I'm assuming you like kind of did a lot of saving and finagling to make this actually happen. Yeah, definitely. We had to sell everything before we left and we're definitely at the point where we need to work now. <laughs> this whole trip, it's been 10 years in the making. So we've been, right. it's been in the back of our mind and we've been planning it out. I think most people could do that if they put their head down and thought, okay, this is what we want to do. Let's just do what it takes to do that. So many ways you can do it. Uh, we've met a lot of people too that work on their boats or work from their boats or take it in seasons. So they'll do three or four months um, where they're traveling and sailing and then go back to work, which is actually what we did on the first trip was take it in chunks like that. But yeah, there's, there's a ton of ways that you can do that. Just depends on what your setup is and what you want to do. Awesome. Very cool. And how are the kids liking it? They're absolutely loving it. <laughs> Our kids are, are feral now. And so they're... <laughs> You're never getting them back to school. <laughs> no, they're back in school now. So now they're getting a taste of the real world. But um, they had an absolute blast. My daughter's really into animals and, and my son loves everything about the ocean. So it's been so cool watching them fill that space. And we were really worried, you know, we didn't, when we left, we didn't even know if they got seasick or not. Mm. We, we didn't know how they would handle you know heavy weather and the scary things that are there but yeah to watch them go through it with us and watch them watch us handling it all was it just pulled us all together as a family so no, it, was, it was an amazing time very cool that is awesome so are you going to stay on the boat while you're working there you're going to try to find a place on shore no we are we're on the south island of new zealand so i'm in queenstown now and so yeah we're we have to be in a house unfortunately but um <laughs> Yeah, we will We will get back to the boat at some point here. Yeah, no, just part of the adventure. That's it, exactly. Story's still being written. All of us are, right? <laughs> That's it. It's every day you write your story. All right, so at the end of each episode, I have a series of questions I love to ask. The first one is, what is your favorite sea creature? Oh, man, favorite sea creature. I know, it's hard. I took it away for a long time because I got asked, and I was like, you know, today... I think I told her eagle rays, but usually the answer is corals. <laughs> it just changes on the day. Yeah, I would have to say the dog-toothed tuna, one of my hmm. favorite species. Why? Such an interesting fish. Um, it's a really hard fish to get close to. I, see, I'm all about trying to find species in the ocean that are really difficult to get around. Uh, sharks are, they're not difficult to get around. You just have to put yourself in the water with them. <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's certain species that don't want to be anywhere near you. And so it's always kind of really interesting to try to play that game with them. Not sneak up on them, but like if you do sneak up on them, it's, it shows you that you're a part of that ecosystem enough to where they're not threatened by you. Mm. And so playing that game with Dogtooth, it, we've been in Fiji and there's a lot of them there. And so it's been really interesting watching them exist and watch how they interact with you. But yeah, I don't know. For now, at least that would that's what it would be. <laughs> that's a good one. I like it. 
I like the idea of like the species that you want to get close to mm. entrenching yourself, becoming an ocean creature. So they'll trust you. <laughs> yeah, that's it. All right. I have a question special for you. Free diving or scuba? Free diving. Yeah. I'm like Happy Gilmore, you know, I scuba dive for work, but I free dive in my off time. What is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could just be an amazing day out in the water, on the boat, at work, or it could be a day where things went wrong and it makes a really great story now. Yeah, um, I would just have to say working in the Santa Barbara Channel is just incredible because we have these days where we'll be driving out to the island to dive, but on the way, sometimes we'll have humpback whales 10, 12 strong that are all creating this crazy show for us. And then you'll have a thousand dolphins come through and bird piles. And so just field stories, it's just going out to the Channel Islands. It's been amazing. Other than that, yeah. Anyone that you usually meet in, in the marine science world that's out on a boat is going to be an awesome person. So we always have tons of laughs. And yes, there are things that are that go wrong, but I'm not going to talk about those. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, no, nothing bad, knock on wood. It's just always fun when you get to go out on a boat and go scuba diving for work. There's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. Especially when you see humpback whales playing in pods of a thousand dolphins. That's awesome. Definitely. Have you been to California? I have. I have. I've been to San Diego. We went a couple years ago and we went diving just right off the coast right there in a little bit of kelp. They had had a massive die off like a year or two prior and it was starting to come back. Yeah. So that was like my first experience kelp diving. That was my... Well, that's not my first experience, cold water diving, but that was proper cold water. <laughs> yeah. No, I have, I think my suit's 20 mil on the chest. It's like 10 mil two-piece suit. So <laughs> I'm, kind okay. of a, I'm kind of a baby in the cold water, but. No, I'm such a baby. And my husband's like, you'll be fine in a, I want to say they put me in a seven mil. And I was like, I don't think so. I don't think so. I wear a three mil in Florida. Mm. And I was freezing. <laughs> like yeah. I'm doing a dry suit next time. <laughs> yeah, my free diving suit's five mil so it's a little different when you're free diving but when you're down on the bottom for a long period of time you definitely get really cold especially when you're doing multiple dives a day absolutely if you were given a blank check for any project or projects up to three what would you use it for unlimited funds i think what i really would like to see now is a lot more opportunities and time for kids to get involved with the marine world, but really just nature in, in general. I think it's so important to catch people at a young age and give them that sort of spiritual connection to what what's going on around them. So my wife's a teacher, so we've talked about some specifics of how we might be able to do this in the future. And it's definitely sort of in our minds. But yeah, just giving kids more opportunities to do adventures and to build confidence in nature and to have the experience and time to be out there experiencing it. That's what I would really like to see. I like that. Get them while they're young. I like that a lot. And it's so fun to see kids just, I mean, it's any child, whether they're used to the water or not, is just so much fun to see out in nature just playing, right? But then you get the ones that don't get out, that see their reactions. That's like, that's where the gold is. It's amazing. Yeah, we definitely got to watch that happen with our children. You know, it was the initial stage is kind of like they're, they're not really absorbing how much is going on because it takes time to sort of think about it. It's just like all, you know, myself as well, you know, it takes a long time to understand what is happening. It's like people that start scuba diving, you know, everyone's really interested in the big stuff first, but the older <laughs> scuba divers are all interested in the really little stuff. 
because they're now down at the point where they've seen and sort of understood what's happening at these bigger scales. And now they're really looking at the interactions of all the little things. And so mm-hmm. it's the same thing with kids when they arrive in the ocean. Yeah, splash and you know all that stuff, but it takes a long time for them to really identify different species and understand what they're doing and why they're here. And so really just the more time that we can give kids in the water or out in nature is critical for them to build that sort of understanding. And I think that education is just so important, especially those extracurricular things for kids. Absolutely. At the end of each episode, I like to leave the audience with a conservation ask. What would you like my audience to take from your episode today? I think there's a lot of things that people can do daily, but I think if you keep a mindset of how interconnected everything is in the world, then it kind of guides how you behave a little bit. Yes. So yeah, it's just the way I think is I I try to think about how everything affects something else. And so you definitely hear a lot of conflict back and forth about, oh, do this, do that. Yeah, really one thing can definitely affect something else. So it's important to think about the information that you're receiving and, and actually how it plays out on the larger scale. Really, that generally comes down to if you want to do something helpful to the world and the, and the environment at this point, is just use less of everything and try to be more conscious of what you are using. In that same vein, it's, it's really just a mindset of understanding how interconnected everything is and how important it all is. Yeah, we simply can't survive if we don't have healthy ecosystems around us. So yeah, just making sure you're conscious of that all the time. Yeah, it goes back to the saying, think globally, act locally. I mean, it's been said so much, it's almost cliche, but it's really true. What one person does multiplied by the billions of us on the planet, it makes a huge impact. Yeah, definitely. You know, you have to you have to create a relationship with the world. You know, you have to have it being some sort of, I mean, for me, it's really a it's like a spiritual being, you know, it's like you need to think about it at that level, you know, that, that you can't survive without it and everything you're doing is impacting in the world in some way. And so you just need to be conscious of it. And that really does help guide every decision you make. I like that. What, what you do impacts it in some way or another. And it's kind of like up to you <laughs> what that looks like. Yeah, definitely. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and or your adventures, where's the best place to do so? Yeah, feel free to check out our website. I have a website at wilderness-offshore.com. I have some images there from my travels and things. Yeah, definitely can connect with me on there or um, on Instagram at wilderness underscore offshore. But yeah, otherwise my email is on the website. So if anyone can definitely contact me there with questions or if I can help in any way, feel free to reach out. Awesome. Actually, I wanted to ask you, why wilderness? Did y'all name the boat? Hmm. One of my really good friends, Chris, sort of helped me with that name. He's uh, he's an amazing artist. So he drew the logo and we sort of going back and forth about it. But yeah, no, names are hard. You know, kid names are hard. Boat names are hard. <laughs> They're so hard. There's so many bad boat names too, but. I don't know. I really like the cliche boat names. I'm not going to like, I don't know if I'll do it for my boat, but I love walking down the docks and seeing what tacky things people have named their boats. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> No, they're, they're, a lot of them are pretty funny. But yeah, I don't know. We wanted something that sort of embodied what we, our ethos, I guess. And yeah, being out in the wilderness and the wilderness is a place, but it's also something that we thought, you know, is sort of in your head too. You know, it's like mm-hmm. this unknown space that you have to sort of conquer. And so that was kind of for us, you know, really fit. Yeah, we love our boat. She's treated us really well. So yeah, the wilderness, you know, it's just where we wanted to be. It's where we still want to be. I love it. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for making time today to be on the show. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Yeah, thank you. That was great.
Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community one person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.